sometimes Pastor Jim comes up to me and uh, he says, uh, he says, uh, it was so nice to sit in the back with a cup of coffee and enjoy a good, relaxing Bible study. Thank you very much, Pastor Ross. And I always envy that. Every time he says that, like, wouldn't it be nice to sit down and enjoy a nice Bible study and uh, have a gifted preacher like Jim? So I asked him. I said, why don't you do the preaching Wednesday night? And he said, yes, I will. And so without further ado, Pastor Jim, awesome. I love you too. All right. Well, you can have your coffee. You can go to the back. <laughs> All right. You guys ready to get in the Word of God? All right. That's the reaction I was looking for. So tonight, we're going to take a break of looking at the past and the Old Testament. And tonight, we're going to look into the future. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, it sounds like everybody's there just about, so why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our service. Father, we're so amazed that uh, we can come before your throne, that you invite us, that you welcome us, and you say, come before my throne of grace to find help in your, in your time of need. And tonight, we're in a time of need. We want to learn about you. We want to learn from you. We want to hear from you, God. And so we pray that as we, we look into your powerful and anointed word, that you would speak to us, that you would use your powerful word and my simple message to transform lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 So I'd like to set the context for our book a little bit, okay? And so the Apostle Paul came into the city of Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. It actually tells us that he spent three Sabbath days there. The Sabbath day was a Saturday. So three Saturdays, or what we would say is three weeks. He spent three weeks in Thessalonica preaching and teaching the word of God. And boy, oh boy, was it a very fruitful time for him because people were getting saved. Lives were being changed. Disciples were being made and the church at Thessalonica was birthed. Now, at the end of that three weeks, the apostle Paul was forced to leave town due to persecution. In his first letter in chapter two, he tells us that he tried again and again to get back to Thessalonica to encourage the disciples, but Satan hindered him. And so he wrote two letters, which we have in our Bible as first and second Thessalonians. Now our text tonight is one of the most interesting and illuminating and turned to passages in all of the scripture pertaining to eschatology or the study of the end times. Uh, the disciples in Thessalonica were very perplexed because they had heard conflicting and contradicting teachings concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. And so not only is the Apostle Paul going to clear up the confusion concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, but he's also going to introduce us to the coming of the Antichrist. Is this okay? This way? Okay. Okay, guys, so... We're gonna focus our study around those two thoughts, the coming of the Christ and the coming of the Antichrist. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, starting with verse one. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, the coming of Jesus Christ is a hot-button topic in our day today that has generated much confusion in the church. And it's easy to understand why. I mean, there's so many different views about the return of Jesus Christ. You have those people who believe that Jesus Christ will return at the end of the tribulation period. They're called the post-tribulationalists post-tribulationists. They believe that at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back 
in the clouds of heaven. And then he calls his church to meet him in the air and then we all descend with him and meet him on the earth. And then there's the, those people who believe in the mid-tribulation or the, the pre-wrath view. And they believe that Jesus Christ will return sometime in the middle of the tribulation period and call the church to be with him in heaven for three and a half years or so and then they'll return with him at the end. And then there's us who hold to the pre-tribulational view or the correct view. <laughs> we believe that Jesus Christ is going to rapture, is going to catch us, is going to remove us from this earth before the tribulation period. And then there are those who don't wanna get involved in the argument and their pan trip. They say, oh, it's all gonna pan out in the end. And so there was a lot, there's a lot of confusion in the church today and we're not alone because that same confusion, that same puzzlement had arisen amongst the believers there in Thessalonica. And so the Apostle Paul, being the pastor that he is, starts out by saying, hey guys, don't be unsettled, don't be alarmed. Now the Greek word for unsettled means to be, to be agitated or to be stirred up as by a storm. So like the, the shaking that a storm, the agitation that a storm would cause uh, in the ocean and that the shaking that those waves would bring upon a ship or the shaking that an earthquake might bring upon a house, so too whatever was happening there in Thessalonica was shaking up the disciples. And so they're shooken up and they were alarmed. Now, have you guys ever set off an alarm before? It can be quite a frightening and panicking experience. About a month ago, uh, my wife went to the store to pick up a few items and I was on the couch and I was watching TV and then I received a phone call and when my phone rings and her face comes on, it's the sound of a beautiful harp, okay? And it says beautiful across it and so I answer the phone and uh, it wasn't her mellow, calm voice but she was really frightened and she was really panicked and there was the sound of this alarm going off in the background, beam, 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 beam. You see what happened was our car alarm was going off and she didn't even know that we had a car alarm and there was no button to turn the car alarm off. And so she was freaking out. She was panicked and that's exactly what was going on here. They were panicked, they were, they were frightened, they were freaking out, but, but, but why? Well, the text tells us See, they had heard some prophecy or some report, some preacher stood up and delivered some message or they got some letter supposedly having come from the Apostle Paul, a forgery, saying this, that you are in the day of the Lord. Now to understand why they're freaking out about being in the day of the Lord, we have to understand what the day of the Lord is, right? You can't think of it as a 24-hour day, but rather as a period of time in which God is intervening in the affairs of man to bring judgment. Now there are 19 references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and four references specifically with that phrase, day of the Lord, in the New Testament. So I thought, hey, let's go through each one of those individually. Just kidding. Okay, I'm just gonna sum it all up for you guys. <laughs> okay, I need a glass of water too, anybody? Uh, so, throw it up here. No, there's no water up here, it's used. <laughs> right there, hook me up, right there. So to sum it up for you guys, the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a very dreadful day, the Bible says, that comes on the world suddenly and unexpectedly. Now, does that ring a bell for any of you? It sounds strikingly familiar to me to what Revelation chapter six through 19 describes in detail that seven year period of time we label the tribulation 
where God is pouring out his wrath upon this world in the form of 21 judgments, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. And so, day of the Lord is code word for the tribulation. And so what they were hearing from this prophecy or this report or this forgery, they were hearing, you're in the tribulation period. And they were freaking out. And they were panicked, but why? I mean, there's a lot of people today, those who hold to the mid-tribulation view or the post-tribulation view, who are excited. I mean, they're convinced we're going through the tribulation period. And they're super excited about it. They're actually looking forward to it. Why? Because for them, it's a time marker. You see, they know once the tribulation begins, oh, there's only three and a half years until Jesus Christ comes to rapture us from the earth. Or once the tribulation begins, seven years, and then Jesus Christ is coming for us. And so they're super excited about it. They're looking for the coming of the tribulation period. But not here. The Thessalonians, they're not excited. They're not looking forward to it. Matter of fact, it says they're unsettled and they're alarmed. Why? Because the apostle Paul taught them something completely different. And Jesus taught something completely different. This, that the church of Jesus Christ would be rescued from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test the inhabitants thereof. The church would be raptured before the tribulation period begins. In the apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, in every single chapter, chapter one, two, three, four, five, he mentions the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter one, it's really the theme of the entire book, he says, you guys are waiting for his son from heaven. You're not waiting for the tribulation, you're waiting for his son. They were looking forward to the imminent return of Jesus. Imminent is a word that just means it could happen at any time. He mentions his return in chapter two and in chapter three. And then in chapter four, he describes the return of Jesus Christ, an event we call the rapture. In chapter four, verses 16 and 17, he says, the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry. He will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who died before the rapture happened, they will receive their resurrected bodies. The dead in Christ will rise first, and afterward, we, Paul included himself in that expectancy, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, to meet the Lord in the air, and so, we will always be with the Lord. And so he describes the event in chapter four, and then in chapter five, he gives the timing of it all. He said the world is going to be living in peace. They're gonna be saying peace and safety, but then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. It's going to come upon the non-believers. It's gonna be coming upon the children of darkness the children of the night, but not upon you. Why? Because you're not children of the night. You're not children of the darkness. You're children of the light, children of the day. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, You're gonna be raptured before the destruction of the day of the Lord is released upon this earth. And then Jesus, Jesus describes his return. And there's so many different examples that you could give uh, from the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus. But I really like this one. Pastor Ross shares it all the time. He describes his return in in two completely different ways in Matthew chapter 24, excuse me. First of all, he says, my return is going to be like the days of Noah. No one suspected a thing. People were getting married, they were going out for dinner, they were doing all of those things. No one suspected a thing. And then Noah got in the ark. Then Noah left 
the earth. And then what happened? Then my judgment came. And that's how it's gonna be when I come back. Business as usual in this world. People are gonna be getting married, going out to dinner. They're gonna be going to the movies, going shopping, enjoying life. No one's going to be suspecting a thing. And then I'm gonna come like a thief, unsuspectingly. Two people on one side of the world are gonna be working in a field. One's gonna be taken, one's gonna be left. Two people on the other side of the world are gonna be in a bed sleeping. One's gonna be taken, one's gonna be left. And then sudden destruction will come upon them all. And so he describes his return as the secret. No one suspects anything. And then he says something completely different. He says, oh, when, when I come back, There is gonna be geological catastrophes all over this world. World war, famines. The Antichrist is gonna be going crazy on the scene. The sun and the moon and the stars are not gonna shine their light. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the clouds of heaven. It'll be like the lightning that shines from the east and the west. It will be obvious people will be expecting his return. And so we understand this to be Jesus describing two phases of his return. First, the rapture of the church. Jesus Christ comes back before the tribulation for his church. He calls us to be with him in heaven. And then at the end of that seven year period of time, he comes back with his church to set up his millennial kingdom. And so what I hear the Apostle Paul saying here is, hey guys, don't be unsettled. Don't be alarmed. You're not in the day of the Lord and you're not going to go through it at all. So be encouraged. Now, the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ is meant to accomplish two things in your life. One, it's meant to give you an amazing peace. Know this, that you will never, ever, ever, experience the wrath of God. That doesn't mean that you won't have trials, that you won't have hardships, that you won't be persecuted. Those things are all promised to you. But you will never experience the wrath of God, not only in eternity, but also during the tribulation period. So it's meant to give you peace, and it's also meant to inspire godly living. Last week, I was having a really hard time with my heart. I just, not my physical heart. I just, <laughs> I'm too young for that, hopefully. I just felt like I wasn't treating the people around me right. I was like, what is going on in here? Just, oh, just chewing people up. And then the thought kind of floated into my mind. What if Jesus returns today? Is this how you want to be found? And so his imminent return for us is meant to inspire us to live in a godly way. And so the Apostle Paul clears up that confusion concerning the coming of Jesus, and now he's going to introduce us to the coming of the Antichrist, who is the cardinal sign that that the tribulation period has begun. And so let's look at verses three through seven after I take a drink of water. Where is verse three? It says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And so the coming of the Antichrist. Now this guy goes by many titles, okay? And a title is something that speaks of what? Your your role, your position, and quite possibly your character. 
Uh, I've gone by many titles in my life. Uh, I ran around the church for a couple years with the title Janitor Jim, okay? (laughs) It's one of my titles here. It spoke of my role around here. It spoke of my position, but not necessarily my character. And my wife could vouch for that because I'm not the neatest guy in the world. So that was one of my titles. I also go by the title Dad. I also go by the title husband and and pastor, and hopefully those aren't just roles and positions, but hopefully they speak of my character. Now this guy, he goes by many titles. Here in our text, he's called the man of lawlessness. This guy is a law unto himself. He has no reverence for God's law. He's called the man doomed to destruction, and that speaks of his destiny. Revelation chapter 13 calls him the beast. Now when I think of that, I think of the dog that my friend used to have. It was a chow, and it actually took a couple chunks out of my leg, a ferocious beast, drooling, gnarling, and just always barking at you. (laughs) A very, very mean dog. And so this guy is called the beast, and most famously, what most of us know him by as the Antichrist. And that title was given to him by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Now, that word antichrist means two things. It means opposed to Christ and in place of Christ. And so this guy is opposed to Christ in every single way imaginable. And he looks to replace Christ. He's a false Christ. He's a false Messiah. And verse three of our text tells us that he's actually, during the tribulation period, going to go into the very temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. There is not a temple over in Jerusalem right now, but there will be. It's going to be rebuilt. We were actually there in May. And we went to a place called the Temple Institute. And they have everything ready to fulfill this prophecy, to rebuild this temple. They have the garments that the priest is going to wear. They have the altar of incense. They've got everything. They've got it all ready. And that temple will be rebuilt. And this man will go in there and proclaim to the whole world, I am God. He's going to woo the world into thinking, into believing that that he is the Messiah, that he has the answers, that he is the answer to all of the world's problems, that he is God. Oh my goodness, crazy. Very interesting. The world, the whole world seems to be looking for a man who can solve its problems. The world, the religious world is looking, many of them are looking forward to the coming of their own personal savior, teacher, and Messiah. The Jewish people are waiting for their Messiah to come, for their Christ, because they rejected Jesus. They don't believe that he was the one promised in the scriptures. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews. He said, you won't receive me. I'm coming in my father's name, but, but you don't receive me. But if another man comes in his own name, him you will receive. That was a reference, I believe, to the Antichrist. And so the Jews are waiting for a Messiah. The Buddhists are waiting for their world teacher called the Maitreya Buddha, who they believe is going to usher in world peace and tranquility. The Hindus are waiting for the reincarnation of Krishna who they believe was the God-man. And they actually say that Jesus, our Lord, our God, our Savior, this is very blasphemous, was a reincarnation of Krishna. And they say, guess what? Krishna's coming back again. And he is, but he's not the Savior. He's actually going to be the Antichrist. And then we have the Muslims who are waiting for the 12th Imam or the 12th Muslim ruler to come on the scene. You see, they believe that that he lived centuries ago, but he disappeared when he was nine years old. But they say he's coming back. Oh yeah, he's coming back. They believe that he's going to come up out of a well in the desert of Iran. 
There's a lot of people, this well is very famous. They, they, go, they make pilgrimages from all over the world to this well in this desert village. And they, they toss, it's kind of like the, the wailing wall. They, they toss their prayers into there. And there's all these uh, fairy tales that the parents tell their kids about this well. Interesting. Jesus, Matthew chapter 24, he said, hey, if they tell you that I'm in the desert, if they say the Christ is in the desert, don't believe them because false Christs and false prophets will arise and deceive many. And so uh, it's, it gets even more interesting. They say, so they believe he's gonna come out of this well and they believe that he's going to come back riding on a white horse and he's going to reign on this earth for seven years. Years. They think he's going to usher in the exaltation of Islam. That rings a bell in my mind of something. Revelation chapter six. That's a description of the Antichrist who comes in to usher world peace. And he comes riding on a white horse. So the world, I believe, is prepped and ready for his disclosure, for the revelation of his identity. But our text says that that can't happen until the proper time. Now there are many people who are trying to figure out who is the Antichrist? Just who is this man, the Antichrist? And they think they can figure it out. There's many websites. I I went on some of them, okay? And you can actually cast your vote for who you think the Antichrist is, okay? And some of the popular votes, uh, President Bush, President Obama kind of says what we think about our presidents here in America, and uh, of course, the Pope. You know, if I wanted to tonight, I could cast my vote in for you being the Antichrist, but of course, I would never do that. But they also, that's silly, but they also have these very interesting mathematical equations, which they use to figure out who the Antichrist is. You see, Revelation chapter 13 says that the number of his name is 666. And if you're wise, you'll calculate it. If you're wise, you'll figure it out. And so what they do is they ascribe this numerical value to each letter in the alphabet. And so all I would have to do is impute your name into this uh, formula, and if it adds up to 666, bingo, you are the Antichrist. And so really, that's silly, super silly. You see, God is the sovereign ruler over the entire universe. He's the one who raises up kings. And so this antichrist, this man, his identity won't be revealed until God gives the okay, until God's prophetic timetable is ready to go. Now verse seven says, although he can't be revealed until the proper time, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Now, I believe that this is a reference to the agenda of Satan. You see, what Satan is up to behind the scenes is he's trying to usher in a one world government, a one world order, which is headed up by one man whom Satan will, I believe, possess and whom the world will worship. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Isaiah 14, I will ascend above the heavens I will ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the most high God. Satan wants the worship of the entire world to be focused and centered on one person, him in the Antichrist. You remember in Matthew chapter four, when he's tempting Jesus, he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll do this one thing, if you'll fall down and worship me. And so that is exactly what Satan wants and that's what he's trying to accomplish. And many commentators believe that he's attempted this many times throughout history, most recently in the person of Hitler, but obviously he failed. Why? Because it's only going to happen at the proper time and that is in God's time. Now our text says that, that someone is holding him back. Someone 
is preventing Satan's plan from succeeding up into this point. Now, I believe that someone is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. His power prevents lawlessness from prevailing, amen? And so not only does he restrain, and that's one of the titles given to him in other translations, not only does he restrain and frustrate the plans of Satan now to bring his antichrist on the scene, but he also works in similar fashion in our hearts and in our lives. Because is there not a secret power of lawlessness, lawlessness that is at work in you and that is at work in me? You see, I am a Christian. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And I desire to live for him. I desire to honor him, to please him. But at the same time, I see something else working in me. My sinful nature, which has evil thoughts, evil passions, evil inclinations. And so what am I to do? I want to live for God, but then at the same time, another part of me doesn't want to live for God. We need the help and the power of the restrainer, the Holy Spirit of God. We need to cry out to him, Holy Spirit of God, unleash in me the same power that you displayed when you worked with the Father and when you worked with the Son in creating the entire world in Genesis chapter one. Holy Spirit of God, unleash your power in me that you displayed when you raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day. Because God, I wanna live for you. I wanna live in a way that pleases you. I wanna think in a way that pleases you. I wanna speak in a way that pleases you. Everything I do, God, I want to please you, and I can't do it apart from you because there is a secret power of lawlessness at work in me. Help me, God. Help me, God. Now, back to the Antichrist. This guy is going to have some serious power. And he is going to have a worldwide following, but he will ultimately meet his end when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period to establish his millennial kingdom. So let's uh, close up by looking at this guy's power and his destruction. So about 10 minutes or so. So verse eight to the end. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in an unwickedness. So first, let's talk about the Antichrist's power. He's gonna have some serious political power. After the rapture of the church, and you can read about this in Daniel chapter nine, an amazing text, The Bible says that he is going to broker a peace treaty between the nation of Israel and the surrounding Middle Eastern countries. It's going to be the most amazing miracle, the most amazing political feat in the history of civilization, of world civilization. I mean, you guys know what's going on over there. Nobody can figure it out. Nobody has the answers, but the Antichrist will have the answers. And because he does, this will usher him to the position of the worldwide president. And so he's gonna have political power. He's also gonna have economical power. Revelation chapter 13 says that he causes everybody on the face of the planet to receive a mark in their right hand or a mark in their forehead. It's called the mark of the beast, 666. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't trade unless you have this mark. That means you can't go to Lucky's after church and get your groceries. 
You can't go out for lunch after church on Sunday because you don't have the mark. Matter of fact, if you're a Christian business owner, your business is going to be shut down. You can't sell anything, you can't, you can't do anything unless you have this mark. And if you take the mark, you'll be damned. You're pledging your allegiance to Satan. So he has political power, he has economic power, and our text here says that he's going to have supernatural power. The ability to perform signs, miracles, and wonders. Now the Bible doesn't go into great detail as just as to just what those signs, miracles, and wonders are. It only gives us a little preview. Fire being called down from heaven in the sight of man. Now those aren't cheap magic tricks, folks, okay? That's supernatural power and ability. There's this, uh, this magician guy, and uh, his name is Chris Angel, okay? And he's got a TV show called Mind Freak, okay? And he does some crazy, crazy uh, tricks on there. One of them is him actually walking on water. And so you see him by a poolside and there's a bunch of people swimming around in the pool, having a good time. And he comes up to the edge of the pool and he takes off his shoes and he, and he throws it into the pool to show that there's nothing in there, okay? That it's just a pool. And then he begins to walk on the water and he walks all the way across the pool to the amazement of everybody in the pool. But you see, it's an illusion. It's deception, it's, it's trickery, because there in the pool, spaced out, he has invisible plexiglass, and he knows exactly where it's at. And so there's one here, there's one there, there's one there. But the Antichrist, his power, it's not trickery, it's not magic tricks. The Bible says it's the very power of Satan. You see guys, Satan is alive and well today, working diligently, planning and strategizing to bring about his purposes of deception, the deception, the destruction and the damnation of the entire world. You see, he already knows I'm cooked, I'm, I'm done for. And so I just imagine him saying, if, if I'm going down, then so are you. And so are your friends. And so is your family. Satan has a plan. He wants to destroy the world. And you say, hey, wait a second, Jim. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can't be damned. Amen. You cannot be damned. You cannot be deceived into eternal damnation. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. Once saved, always saved. But you can be deceived. And you can be destroyed by the work of Satan if you give him a foothold in your life. But you can't be damned. But what about those who are not in Christ? Not only are they deceived now because they're not in Christ, but they're headed for destruction and they're headed for damnation. And that's exactly what Satan wants. And so Satan, in the proper time, when he's permitted by God, after the rapture of the church, will bring his man onto the world stage. A man in which Revelation chapter 13 says, receives his power, his throne, and his authority from Satan, okay? And so we could say that the Antichrist is a worshiper of Satan. We could say that he is a man controlled by Satan and even possessed by Satan, hence his ability to be able to do supernatural things. Now, I started thinking about this guy because he's a human being, maybe alive today, just like you and just like me, okay? How does he become the Antichrist? I mean, he has to make a decision ultimately to surrender himself to Satan, okay? So how does that happen? And why would anybody surrender their heart to Satan? Well, Satan's deceptions always start with a simple and seemingly harmless introduction, do they not? Just one drink, no big deal. Just one drink, nothing bad's gonna happen. Just one little kiss on the lips. Nothing wrong with that. Just one little glimpse at that image on the computer. I mean, what's the big deal anyways? But you see, we're all just one simple introduction away from total destruction. 
because one drink leads to two, two to three, three to drunkenness, and all the debauchery that goes along with that. One kiss leads to making out with that girl that you're not even married to, and sin. One click on that image on the computer screen leads to hours of browsing and a lifelong sin. A simple introduction. And so perhaps this man, I'm just thinking about how does, how does he surrender himself to Satan? Perhaps a friend or a family member introduces him to the occult. They, they, they show him the, his horoscope. They take him to have his tarot cards read. They take him to a psychic or to a fortune teller. And, and he really likes it. And he goes deeper and deeper to the point where he surrenders himself to Satan. I don't know. But I do know this. With that, all, that whole cult stuff. All of those things are vehicles and, and means by which people uh, contact the spirit world. But the Bible says that, that what they're real, who they're really contacting is demons. And it's strictly forbidden for Christians because why would we want to communicate? Why would we look for counsel and guidance and direction from demons? We should be looking for counsel and guidance and direction from God and from God's word alone. So this man is, he's, so the how, how does he surrender himself to Satan? Well, it starts with an introduction and then why? Well, then he is deceived, okay? And that's Satan's motif. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, okay? Now, I was looking up Satanism, okay? On my computer screen, my wife walked in the door, had the joy of Satan on the computer screen, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, no, it's for study, okay? But interesting, there is a sect of Satanism, and this is what they believe, that Satan is the true creator, that he is the true father, that the Lord is a fictitious invention, that the Bible is not true, that the demons were the true God. This is on their website. And that we save ourselves contrary to what that Nazarene teaches. Man, that's crazy. Now, so I'm still thinking about this guy and, and how he becomes the Antichrist. And so I just imagine Satan coming to him and, and promising him. He says, you can have power. You can have a throne. You can have authority. You can have riches and popularity. And, and this man says, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I'm craving. And then Satan, this is all in my mind. Satan says, then bow then serve me, and this man does, and he becomes then the Antichrist. Just all in my brain, just thinking, okay? Now, a few years ago, almost done, sorry guys. A few years ago, I was talking with a guy, I was, I was talking to him about the Lord, trying to convince him to get saved, and he said, oh man, I, I can't give my life to Jesus. And I said, well, why? Why can't you give your life to Jesus? Because I made a deal with the devil, man. What, you made a deal with the devil? Yeah, I made a deal with the devil. What kind of deal did you make? Well, he promised me if I sell my soul to him, if I serve him, if I bow and worship him, that I can reign with him in hell. Dude, that is the biggest lie I have ever heard. Satan is a deceiver and he comes to us and he says, money is where it's at. That should be your pursuit in life. That is what is going to bring you fulfillment. That is what is going to bring you satisfaction satisfying those hormonal cravings, those natural hormonal cravings should be your pursuit in life. You know, pornography, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, premarital sex. Why are you trying to keep yourself pure? Everybody's doing it. What's wrong with having an affair? Why are you trying to resurrect that dead marriage anyways? You guys live like roommates, so what's the big deal? Lies, lies, lies. Satan is a deceiver, resist him, he wants to destroy you. Our pursuit, our passion in life, that which will bring fulfillment and satisfaction to us is God and God alone through a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this man, the Antichrist, he's introduced, then he's deceived into believing the lie that he is God and this will ultimately lead, us, lead him to his destruction. So at the end of the seven year tribulation period, three and a half years of which he has been running around the world proclaiming himself to be God, at the end of all of that, 
Revelation chapter 19 in verse eight of our text tells us that Jesus Christ returns visibly and uh, to establish his throne on this earth and he overthrows and he destroys the Antichrist and really all of those who believe the lies of Satan and reject the truth of God. Now, there's an amazing paradox here and we're almost done. In our text, it says that um, Jesus overthrows and destroys this man by the breath of his mouth. And so by the breath of Jesus, this death comes, okay? But if you remember, his breath in other places brings life. Genesis chapter two, after he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, it says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so his breath brings death, but it also brings life. You remember John chapter 20 and verse 22. After he's risen from the dead, the disciples are all in a room and Jesus just shows up and what does he do? He says, receive the Holy Spirit who's life and he breathes on them. So his breath brings life and his breath brings death. And then here, his coming, it, it, it destroys, it brings retribution and it brings judgment on non-believers. But his coming for us, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ and are sealed by the Holy Spirit, his coming brings salvation. His, his coming brings glory, it brings reward. It's that great and blessed hope that we all look forward to. You see, his gospel, it's eternal life or it's eternal damnation. You either love the truth or you refuse to love the truth. That's just the way it is. I remember nine years ago, talking to my nana on the telephone and she told me about Jesus. I just remember falling in love with what she had to say. She, she quoted a scripture, I think it's Isaiah 43. She said, you know, your life is like a desert but God can, he can make streams in the desert. He can give you a new life and I fell in love with that truth. I fell in love with the truth that the God of the universe loves me, sins and all. That he loves me so much that he would die on a cross for me. That he would bleed, that he would suffer, that he would experience the condemnation so that I could be set free and be able to go to heaven when I die. I fell in love with that truth. Have you fallen in love with that truth? Now if you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is coming upon this world. If you do not know Jesus, you will not go through the rapture. You will go through the tribulation. The tribulation is coming to a neighborhood near you. You think all that bad stuff only happens in the Middle East and over here in America, peace and safety? Watch out, it's coming on the whole world. The wrath of God is coming, not only in this life, but in the life to come. When you die, if you don't know Jesus, hell. And God does not want that for you. He desires for none to perish, but to all to come to repentance. He wants us all to be saved. And so it's a simple confession. Jesus, I've sinned. I believe you're the Lord. Save me. That's simple. You're good to go. You escape the wrath of God forever. And for those of us in here, and that's most of us, who know Jesus Christ, rejoice. He is coming soon perhaps tonight, and so let's be ready, let's be found blameless and spotless so that we can rejoice at him when he appears, amen? amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. So powerful, so living, so active, that sharp two-edged sword, which is able to get down deep in our soul. You use your word to, to correct us, to rebuke us, to teach us, and, and to equip us for good works. And so we, we believe by faith that your word has gone out tonight and touched lives, and we just love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can stand for the closing song. be honest with you, I was looking forward to enjoying a cup of coffee and listening to a good Bible study, and I could have if it wasn't so riveting that wasn't a sermon, that was a word from God Almighty on high, considering there are warships from all over the world off the coast of Syria, Iran threatening to fire a thousand missiles into Israel if we do anything in Syria, and our president wanting to do something in Syria. Prophecies 2,700 years old, 
about the destruction of Damascus, about Israel's enemies, Psalm 83, coming in to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, Psalm 83, Isaiah 17, Ezekiel 37 and 38, all about the last days. And we're talking about it in the news. 2,700 years, and they're still there, and they're still angry and still opposed to each other. If ever you wanted to backslide and play games with God, today's a bad day to do that. It's just the wrong time. It's always the wrong time to mess around with God, but right now it'd be especially wrong. Amen? Two things in my mind. If, if we're messing around with God and kind of stuck and going back and forth, now's the time to just, you know, yield our hearts and say, Lord, by the power of him who restrains, restrain that besetting sin in me. Heal my heart. Help me to love you. Change my desires. Help me to want to pray. Because if I want to pray, I will pray. And if I want to live holy, I'll live holy. So change my heart. And if you don't know the Lord tonight, it's as easy as, as Jim said, just to open your heart. My sinner's prayer was this, God, I looked up into the sky and I said, God, you're right, I'm wrong. That's it. That's all I knew to do, to surrender. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, first for hearts that have compromised and are just stuck and we go back and forth and... Uh, neglect spiritual discipline, which leads us to falling into temptation and doing the crazy cycle over and over and over again. Well, today, tonight, you've drawn us back to church. Here we are. We've heard your word. It's further proof that you're not done with us. Your grace is sufficient. You love us. If you didn't, you would have let us go our way. But you've restrained us from that madness and you brought us back. And here we are. So we pledge tonight, Lord, not, not by our power, not by might, but by your spirit. Because that's where the true change in power comes. So once again, we yield ourselves to you. We open our hearts. We say, yes, Lord, you're right. We're wrong. Reign in us. And for anybody who doesn't know the Lord, it's as simple as this. Let's just repeat this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. Tonight I open my heart to you. Give me new life. Help me to live for you and to love you. Wash away all my sins and change my heart. Grant me new power to live for you. Today I'm yours. Again and for always. Amen. So, Lord, we just pray for your peace to dismiss us and that we'd go our way encouraged in the Lord and ready with our eyes on you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, now the lights can come on. There you all are. I knew you hadn't left yet. Prayer at the cross, as always. If not, we'll see you Sunday morning. God bless you.